Hi guys, quick one before we get into the episode. This episode is sponsored by Zencaster, which is the production suite that I've used from the very beginning of this podcast. And if you're interested in starting your own podcast, hang around at the end of the episode for our 30% discount referral code. Thanks. So our podcast is called Right and Wrong. Are these your notes? These these your notes about what we're going to say? Anything is the short answer. (laughs) So how many novels did you not finish? Oh my God, so many. (laughs) It was perfect. What are you talking about? This is nonsense. Ooh, a spicy question. I love it. This is it, guys. The big secret to getting published is you have to write a good book. (laughs) You've got to hear first. (laughs) Hello and welcome back to the Right and Wrong podcast. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by award-winning novelist, non-fiction writer, broadcaster, and historian, Rebecca Stott. Hi, Rebecca. Hello. How's it going? Yeah, very good, thank you. In London, and it's a beautiful morning here. Oh, well, I'm glad the weather is on your side. Uh, Let's start off by talking about your latest release, Dark Earth, which came out in June. It's a literary historical fiction set in 500 AD England. What is it about and what made you choose that setting and and the characters? I I really, really wanted, I became fascinated a few years ago, maybe as many as five years ago. Actually, I've always been fascinated by ruined cities, (laughs) Um, particularly ruined cities that represent a different civilization that's somehow kind of mysterious. Mm. Um, and then I came across uh, some information about Londinium. So the Londinium was this great big, you know, mile-wide city, basically the, the size of the, the financial district of London now, um, built by the Romans when they occupied Britain and then abandoned by the Romans 400 years later. And I came across this amazing fact that for 400 years after the Romans abandoned their huge city, and you imagine a great wall around it with forums and bathhouses and warehouses and all built in stone, they abandoned it. And then for about 400 years, it was unoccupied. I mean, unvisited. The number of things that people have found in the ruins after the Romans left that they can date to that 400-year sort of sleeping beauty period um, you could put in a single shoebox. So, you know, it, it, it just blew my mind. And, and then I started thinking, well, then I found a brooch. I don't know, I'll talk about the brooch in a little while. But basically my book is about two sisters, Anglo-Saxon sisters, so they've migrated to England or their father has, who are uh, living sort of in exile on a mud island in the Thames opposite the ruined city. And uh, various things happen and they have to go on the run. And eventually, having tried to find sanctuary in various places, they're they're quite young, they have to take refuge inside the ruined city and they find a community of women there. So so it's a story about two women on the run, two sisters on the run, and they are being pursued by the local warlord and his men. And they and the community of women that they find have to find ways to... uh, defend themselves against the men without the physical might that the men have. So it's about magic and witchcraft and smoke and mirrors. Amazing. So it sounds like what sparked this was a sort of a bit of information that you found out a little bit of, a little bit of research. 
I know that you've worked on plenty of non-fiction stuff. What, why did you decide to do this as historical fiction as opposed to a non-fiction piece? Oh, that's such a great question. Yeah, usually I always know whether a book is, you know, historical fiction or whether, or fiction or indeed non-fiction. Mm-hmm. With this, I didn't. All I knew was that I was obsessed with it. And, you know, although I was trying other projects and thinking about other projects, I kept coming back to this. There was something about it. And, you know, I started thinking about fiction and nonfiction because I, I, I write probably equal amounts of both. Yeah. It's unusual, I think. You know, I was trained as a historian. Um, well, I wasn't, yeah, I was trained as a historian and a literary critic and so on. So it's unusual to move between the two. And I think I've just started, a few years ago, started to think of it as a spectrum rather than as a binary, if you know what I mean. Okay. That there, there have been novels I've written that have mixed nonfiction into them, like my novel Ghost Walk, my first novel, which had a sort of nonfiction book tucked inside it in extracts. Um, and the, with this one was all was different again. I mean, that's the amazing thing, isn't it, about books? Is that I think for writers, you start again each time. You have the toolbox, and you have methods, but. Each project requires different things of you. And this, I think more than anything, I wanted my feet on the ground in that ruined city. I wanted to be able to see through Isla's eyes. Isla is my main protagonist. I wanted to be able to see through somebody who was living there at the time. And so although I started it as a nonfiction book, I, the fiction kept breaking through. <laughs> I kept wanting to say, imagine walking across the city and it's 500 AD and it's, you know, there are walls and there are, you know, cracked walls. And, you know, I wanted all of that. And eventually my agent just said to me, just write the novel, (laughs) Um, which is really interesting because the two forms were vying. But I think that's not because it was either one or the other. It was that I was somewhere in the middle of that spectrum. You know, I wanted to do something that was more fiction than nonfiction, but nonetheless to weave enough fact around the book, you know, in the preface and in the acknowledgements to give people a slightly different kind of experience from from an average novel to tell them, you know, this is true, this is true, this is true. You know, and what I did was to write into the gaps. Um, so yeah, it took a while and it was a struggle. Um, but once I started writing the novel, once my agent just said to me, just write the novel, (laughs) um, it came very easily, at least to start with. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned a brooch. What's the story with the brooch? Yeah, the brooch. (laughs) The the brooch was once I got, I got fascinated with Londinium, you know, so going back to that imaginary shoebox the number of objects that had been dropped inside the ruined city and its 400 years of abandonment could be put in a single shoebox. Imagine one of the objects in that shoebox was a brooch. So somebody was, a a wonderful archaeologist who I eventually interviewed, went into an archaeological site on the north bank of the Thames uh, in 1968, I think, and he was digging in an old, what they knew there was an old bathhouse there, an old Roman bathhouse, and he was digging the remains of that. And he found this brooch sitting on top of the fallen roof tiles 
of the bathhouse. So the bathhouse had gone down. By the time this woman dropped her brooch, the bathhouse had gone down and she had walked over the broken roof tiles. Mm. What was astonishing to him about the brooch was he could date it. And he could date it to about 450 or 500 AD. That meant it was an Anglo-Saxon brooch. So what he was looking at, and he told me, you know, the hair stood up on the back of his neck. Here was proof that a an Anglo-Saxon woman went into the ruins and walked across the ruined bathhouse. What was she doing there? You know, so this, so we had a date for it. And yet, because we know nobody went in, you can sort of assume that the people who were farming in the local area probably thought that the uh, ruined city was haunted or it was just too dangerous. So we know none of, nobody was going in, hardly anyone was going in, but an Anglo-Saxon woman did and she dropped her brooch and we know she was there at that moment in time. Uh, okay, the brooch, she you know could have belonged to her grandmother. So, you know, the dating was a bit difficult. Um, but we know it was an Anglo-Saxon woman who dropped her brooch there. So that for me, and the brooch is, the brooch is lovely because it's, it's about two inches wide, maybe an inch and a half, and it's got some lovely patterns on it, but it's rusted and there's a great hole in the middle of it. And it sits on a frame in the, in the London Museum. And when I saw it, and I saw the explanation underneath, you know, that she, this had been found on top of the bathhouse, I suddenly thought, oh, my head was just racing. You know, what was she doing in there? Was she on the run from something? Was this a tryst? Was she curious, more curious than any of her peers? You know, what was unusual about this woman that she was one of the few people to drop something in there? Well, what was she doing? And how did she get in? And all of, you know, did she go by boat? Did she go across the bridge? Was the bridge still standing? So all of those questions started to come thick and fast. And, yeah, so you'll see, if you read the book, you get to the moment where the brooch is dropped. And it's, that's my interpretation of how the brooch got there. And I tried to make it, an, yeah, not the kind of explanation that you would expect. That's awesome. That's such a, such a cool inception for the, for the sort of story and the character and, and, and what it's all about. I remember talking to... Um, so a few years ago, I was part of a salon in London. We called it a salon, very pretentious. <laughs> Basically, it was a group of historians and historical novelists who came together to talk about writing history yeah. and writing history novelistically, whether it was fiction or nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember Philippa Gregory talking about how, because she was, she was in the group, she's so interesting, really interesting woman. And she talked about how constraints, i.e. dates and objects being in a particular place, mysterious things, um, but the facts, basically the facts are your constraints. And it works a bit like, and I've been thinking about it since, it works a little bit like the constraints of a sonnet. You know, you've only got a certain number of syllables to align. Uh, And in a historical novel, for me, things like that, while the brooch was dropped there, that's one of my constraints. I have to have it in there. It's part of the framework. It's part of the architecture. Yeah. But what was different about this was there were so few facts. So I had very little architecture in a way. The brooch was really important as a central truss, if you like, of the, of the structure. Yeah. I've always thought that creativity thrives when it's constrained when you have things in place where it's like okay i can't do this that the other i know these are the historical facts around it 
I think that's where you really have to be innovative with the creativity of the story and, and what happens and things like that. Yeah, it just gives you it gives you fra- a framework, yeah. and, and that's why I think you know sometimes I'm working on another project at the moment uh, for television, and um, it's fascinating because you know, I'm working as part of a bigger team, and the mantra is we are not writing a history lesson, <laughs> we are not making a history lesson, you know. So in other words, we can be we can play hard and fast with the with the facts. Yeah, and there's a bit of me that just keeps on saying, but the facts are the interesting things. You know, you keep the facts in place and we have to work our way around them yeah. or try and figure out why that character did that exactly at that point. That makes sense. As, as a historian, I can see why you would be interested in that. Yeah, yeah. So it's not that I'm obsessed with the history, like, oh, we've got to be true, but mm. it's just that when you start to move the facts all over the place, you lose some of the really interesting stuff. Yeah, you know, yeah. There in the record. So, I mean, as someone who's obviously very interested in history and, and, and old stories and things, do all of your projects sort of start from uh, like something that you find interesting and then you begin researching it? And then from that point, that's where the project is born. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's a new thing for me now, I think, is realizing that my, I'm sure lots of other people have said this is not unique, but it's that I, I finally understand it, that my curiosity is my barometer or my uh, weather system. You know, if I'm really obsessed with something, mm-hmm. there's something to find. You know, if I, if I can't let it go and if, <laughs> if it excites me. So when I wrote Ghost Walk, which was my first novel, that started with a mystery that I came across in a footnote. You know, I was reading a biography of Isaac Newton and it was, it was a lovely biography. I can't remember the name of the the writer now, but it doesn't matter. And he was saying, oh, Isaac Newton was really lucky. He got his fellowship at Trinity, which had enabled him to do all the amazing things he did in this particular year because there were more fellowships available. So then there was a little number and I went to the footnote. And the footnote said, there were more fellowships vacancies available that year because several fellows had fallen down staircases to their deaths. What? Yeah, this was in a footnote. And I I remember uh, putting three asterisks by the, uh, by the footnote and then just going back to it again and again. Then I had to know, you know, <laughs> why were they falling down staircases? You know, was this just a coincidence uh was there somebody helping newton get his fellowship <laughs> by pushing <him laughs> down the stairs <laughs> yeah 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 um and and why were they falling you know were they drunk um so i spent i think about 4 months trying to dig away and i was in cambridge then so i could get mm. into some really rare arch- archives and i did indeed find evidence for all of the four deaths there were four i think deaths that year and they were all mysterious and uh, they were either drunk or drugged. And clearly people who recorded them at the time thought that they were mysterious. I mean, you know, suspicious. suspicious. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. So that's how I started on that one. Yeah, that's so interesting. <laughs> Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. <laughs> I've, I mean, I've had a couple of um, historical authors on the show and one of the things obviously when you're writing anything historical there needs to be a, a a good research element to it and one of the things that people always say one of the pitfalls um for for lack of a better phrase it's over researching and sort of falling down these endless rabbit holes is that something that you've encountered yeah and i and i i don't worry about it so much now again i think i i sort of trust my instincts sometimes this this novel dark earth took five years to write wow or five years to finish from i think i spent about a year and a half on the research and i just think well there's a bit of me that just thinks that's just not financially viable you know writing historical fiction (laughs) taking five years to write each one you know Mm. for goodness sake but it was really hard. This was the hardest one I've written because there's so little information. Yeah. And the information that we do know is in the world of archaeology rather than the world of historical documentation. So I was having to find my way into archaeology and to talk to archaeologists and get them to trust me and ask them to explain why one person thought one thing and one person thought another. And so that took a long time. And then reading our you know it's a new it was a new feel for me in a way but I read and read and read and I just stuck with the questions that were driving me in those early days and then when I started the novel I remember there was a day when I thought okay this is it and I put all the books that I'd been reading all the notebooks all the papers all the you know academic articles Mm. into a couple of really big boxes and took them to the garage and closed the door hard. (laughs) Um, And it was something in that swinging of the garage door shut, you know. I mean, I knew I could go back out there to check something if I needed to. Mm -hmm. But basically this was it, you know, this, I was on my own with it now. It was all in my head and I didn't need any of that stuff anymore. Um, And if I did, then if I needed to check a fact or I needed to, you know, put a person's name in, then I could fill that in later. But that was the moment. That was, it's like for me, I don't know, I'm sure lots of other writers do this as well, but when I'm when I'm in the middle of writing a book, I put the internet blocker on um, and I set it for four hours. And okay. uh, it means I can't get to the internet. Uh... I can't get to my emails. I can't do anything other than work on this project. And there's a lovely moment when the little banner comes up. I use an app called Freedom. Okay. And the little app comes up, a little a little banner comes across your screen and it says, your freedom session has started. <laughs> and that's when my brain gets, or my heart or my mind or whatever part combination it is, really gets going. And I can work for about, I rarely do four, but I can do three of those four hours. Yeah. Um, and then I... F- fall off you know <laughs> that's me done so it's a little bit the same with having the books to hand mm-hmm. that it's closing of that garage door was like saying your freedom session has started you know yeah yeah yeah, yeah. you're allowed to go to the other place of your brain now sure place that you know where the where the girl is who's running away <laughs> um 
And uh, yeah, so it is, I think it is a real, and people ask me that a lot because I used to teach, used to teach at UEA. Yeah. Taught an amazing course there that I designed and was just mine called A Novel History, which was about writing history novelistically. Okay. And uh, the students often had that question like, oh, I've tried writing historical fiction before, but I get lost in the research. I think what I would always say is you have to trust that you've reached a point where you know enough to occupy the world and to be in it, and then you put everything away. Yes. Lock it away if necessary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I spoke to one author who said that she'd spent, she, she'd kind of got lost for a couple of weeks, sort of figuring out the process that they used to create the buttons that went on the shirts. And, and, it, and, then, and then she realized, it's like, why am I even researching this? This is never going into the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then some, sometimes, you, you know, when you're in that research and you find, you know, about the buttons that go on the shirts and mm. then you find a, a button maker that lives in the street where your character lives and you think, yes, I will use that. <laughs> you never know, yeah. You never know where, where you're going to end up. Yeah. Which is exciting. You know, that's, that's the sort of fun part of research, isn't it? Learning these new things and then sort of they suddenly all link up together. Yeah. As someone, presumably you work on, do you work on multiple projects at any one time? I am now. So I gave up my job teaching at UEA last September in uh-huh. order to go freelance. And I really, really have been longing for this moment. Not not because I don't like teaching. I love teaching. But <laughs> I wanted to have a period of time where I was just freelance. So now for the first time in my life, and before I couldn't because I was teaching, you know, doing all the stuff that you do as an academic. Yeah. And so in a, in a sense, yes, I was writing alongside teaching. But now I'm doing several writing projects at the same time. So as someone who sort of finds inspiration through uh, interesting tidbits and then research, have you had many projects where you find an interesting thing, you start researching it, but after a little bit, you kind of lose the energy and then put that project aside? Yeah. Hasn't happened to me a lot. Yeah. But but yes, yes, uh, definitely. There's a lovely poem by um, Don Patterson called Why Why Do You Stay Up So Late? Question mark. And it's dedicated to his son. So his son had asked him this question, Daddy, why do you stay up so late? And he talks to the boy in the poem and says, you know, you know he talks to his son, he says, you know, you, you know when you go to the beach and you collect the stones and you bring them back and you put them in water to see what which one of them's blinked back at you, you know, the ones that are really shiny and have the secret little patterns through them that you can only see underwater. He said, that's what I, that the poem goes on. That's what I do at night. You know, I collect the stones of the day <laughs> and I find out which ones I've got, I wish I could, rem- I'm not very good at remembering. <laughs> but, um, but he talks about the, looking for the one that blinks back at you, mm. you know, and sometimes you choose the wrong stone and it doesn't blink for long or it blinks a little bit and then it, then it stops blinking. That's a great analogy. It is, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's, and it's a great way to sort of approach it as well, especially if you're doing something that that does have that sort of um, work that needs to be done beforehand, like historical fiction or, or a nonfiction uh, piece where you do need to do the research. I guess you can quite quickly understand whether or not you're going to enjoy writing this book by the pace of, of the research. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and... Yeah, it takes a long time. I, I'm really, I'm really 
interested in in ways in which you know I, I guess if I was sensible I would dig the same field you know I would um write the next book in the same period but my brain and curiosity doesn't really work like that it's much more maverick it'll hop from one century to another yeah uh, and, and and I mean from one genre to another from yeah. fiction to non-fiction to academia and things like that and this so this is you've released quite a few books but this is your third novel because yeah. uh, amongst your other books, most notably, uh, In the Days of Rain, which won the Costa Biography Award 2017, I can only imagine um, how good it must have felt that that won and got the sort of recognition that it did because it, it was a book that was so close to home for you. Yeah, it was. And it was also a dangerous book for me to write. So, you know, for listeners, it's it's a... I grew up, it always sounds so melodramatic, but there's more of a way of saying it. I grew up in a, in a, in a cult. Uh, they live in Britain. They live all around the world. They're called the Exclusive Brethren. They call themselves the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church now. And they're unbelievably strict and um, we were not allowed any access to the outside world, really. So we left when I was about eight my parents had been in it all their lives, my grandparents, my great-grandparents. So we didn't know anybody outside. And this particular group, so we, we left because of a sexual scandal that split the group. So quite a lot of people left at the same time as we did. Mm. Um, but the group is, you know, like any cult, it works through brainwashing. So there's a lot of fear of speaking out against the group or in, because most people like me have relatives still inside um, and you don't want them to get into trouble for, you know, things that you've done. Um, and also the brethren themselves are immensely wealthy and very litigious. They practice what's called vexatious litigation, which I love it as a, as a phrase, but it basically means they threaten to take you to court and keep you, keep you uh, under pressure for a really long time until you, you, stop bad-mouthing them or speaking out against them or whatever. Oh, okay. So I knew quite a lot of people who'd been through, you know, the the system of vexatious litigation. And uh, so I was very scared that this book, which was my brave attempt to do what my father had failed to do, um, mm. he was too scared, really. He was too scared to face it. He was too scared to write um, I mean, I, he tried, but I think there was a part of him that, that was really badly damaged by his experience of in, being inside. Yeah. Um, and so I just started writing it. And as I continued writing it and I got a more angry about the way cults work and this particular group work and, and what had happened to us as a family, um, but also uh, more compassionate as I went. You know, I could understand how people like my father stayed inside, how they did terrible things, because he did do terrible things inside. Um, you know, he when he lay dying, he talked of himself as a brown shirt. He talked about the period that we'd been inside the Brethren as a Nazi decade, and I'd say, <laughs> you can't use phrases like that. You know, it's not comparable. Yeah. But there was a bit of me that realised as I did the research and the writing that he was right. You know, he did work. He was a young he was a young Nazi. He worked for the group and bullied people and put them under pressure. 
And I began to try to understand what it was like for those men inside. So, yes, going back to the Costa, well, you know, the book had to go through three separate libel reads before three. the public wow. would, would, you know, because it was coming out in Australia, America and Britain. Simultaneously? Simultaneously. And wow, each amazing. of those countries has different libel laws. So yeah. we had to have three different teams on it. Um, so I felt it was pretty bulletproof by the time it came out. But I was also scared. You know, I was really scared of reprisals. Mm-hmm. My, my family were scared of reprisals as well. Yeah. And then, you know, it wasn't long before it won the Costa. And then my publisher said to me, now it's really bulletproof. Yeah. <laughs> because it's had so much publicity and, you know, it's going to be read by huge numbers of people and it will be, you know, read by church groups and all the rest of it. And it, and it was and it has been. And, you know, so it was obviously wonderful to to have that endorsement that it was a, a you know that it was a work of of worth in itself yeah, but also yeah. to have the protection of the costa yes um yeah. and you know since the book came out and it won the costa and it got lots of publicity i've had something like 400 letters from ex-brethren people who left about the same time we did wow. or who left later all people who were too Scared, and I would actually use the word shell shocked. Really, you know, too yeah. much PTSD to talk to their families about their experience. And many of these people were really elderly, and um, and they it sort of released something in the community. I think once I had gone to press with my book, um, it released something for them. They wanted to tell their story, so I had hundreds of letters. And I even was asked to go to the bedside of a woman in her 90s who was, you know, wasn't going to live much longer. And she'd never talked to her family about what she'd experienced. She read my book and her daughter wrote to me and said, our mother would really like to talk to you. So I drove to Milton Keynes and sat with this wonderful woman for a couple of hours. And she just held my hand and talked to me. That's so Um, nice. It's great that you sort of inspired uh, all these people to... I not necessarily speak up, but but sort of talk about things that they may have not been speaking about or had kind of been holding inside for such a long time. Yeah, yeah. And books are really powerful like that, you yeah. know. Sort of it isn't just that you give them uh that you give people an experience that is very similar to theirs, so that they go, Oh my goodness, that was like that for me too. But yeah. that it breaks a taboo. You know, it's one person stands up and says, This is how it was this is not right. This should not be happening. Um, and this is what happened to my family as a result of what we, what we lived through. Um, and then other people feel that the taboo is broken for them as well. Yeah. 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 So speaking of other people and, and, and offering help, what advice would you have to to give to aspiring writers, whether that's in nonfiction or historical fiction or, or any of the, the areas that you work in? Yeah, that's so interesting. I would say, I mean, because I taught creative writing for a long time, mm-hmm. you know, it's not that we impart our knowledge of, you know, we've got all the secrets and they don't, they've got loads of great tips themselves, the students. Um, but I think, the thing I feel most strongly about is just keeping going yeah, and, and not going back. Um, 
and not going back over the perfect beginning that you've started, but just getting it down, you know, just keeping going, um, not necessarily every day, but regularly, you know, and keeping the story going and putting it down on paper because you'll have to work it later. You know, you work it and you work it and you work it once you've got the first draft. But I've seen too many people just going back over the opening again and again and again to make it perfect. Um, And then, you know, yeah, they can't progress because they're somehow going round and round on this, on this. So I think writing, writing and accepting that the first draft is going to be poor, but just keeping going and not going back and editing constantly. Yes. Yes. As they say, you can't edit a blank page. Yes. So yeah. You need to finish it. That's the advice that quite a lot of people give. Yeah. Yeah. That brings us to the final question of the interview, which is, as always, Rebecca, if you were stranded on a desert island with a single book, which book would it be? Yeah, it's a weird one. I get, I've been thinking about it the last few days. And uh, if you ask me in a week's time, it might be different. But... <laughs> it's the same for me. Don't change it every week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the book I'm longing to reread at the moment is actually Herman Melville's Moby Dick. Oh, yeah, I know. It's weird, isn't it? Uh, I, I have just spent five years writing a book which is almost entirely women uh, mm. because I was very frustrated by reading history books from the period which were almost entirely about men. Mm. Um, and so my book's very, very female-centred. And Moby Dick is almost entirely male-centred. I don't know <laughs> that there's any females in it. Um, but it's such a weird mix of fiction and non-fiction. And it's so joyful and there's a fantastic story that goes all the way through the middle you know Ahab and the whale and the various things that happen on the boat yeah but it's got all of these tangential little pieces about whiteness and about you know sperm oil and you know so sometimes it reads like a natural history book sometimes it reads like a book of philosophy sometimes it's like a novel um but I love the weirdness of it and it makes me laugh. So yeah, it's really good. <laughs> That's really. great. It's great, great to have another classic in the, in the, in the Desert Island collection. Good. And it sounds like that's kind of similar to the way that you like to write your fiction where it's, as you mentioned, the sort of whale oil, you, you dot in these sort of non-fictiony details yeah. so that you, you know, you are learning stuff as, as you read this adventure fun story thing. Yeah, exactly. You can have an adventure story and, and yet hang all kinds of weird things on it, you know, and I think that's why I want to reread Moby Dick. It's really, really terrific book. And he's such a wonderful writer. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't think that I read um, Neil Stevenson's Seven Eves and I've never learned so much about the International Space Station and astronauts as just reading that one like <laughs> dystopian sort of science fiction speculative <laughs> novel. <laughs> which is great. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. Thanks for coming on the podcast, uh, sharing your experience and, and telling us all about how you write and, uh, and what's going on with, with you and, uh, and, and your work. Thank you for having me. And for anyone listening, if you want to keep up with what Rebecca is doing, you can follow her on Twitter at RebeccaStott64 or head over to her website, www.rebeccastott.co.uk. Dark Earth is out now, along with all of her other books. You can go and get them in, in all the usual places. And to make sure you don't miss an episode of this podcast, follow us on Twitter at Right and Wrong UK or on Instagram at Right and Wrong Podcast. Thanks again to Rebecca and thanks to everyone listening. We'll catch you on the next episode. 
Thanks for hanging around until the end. If you're interested in starting your own podcast but aren't really sure what that looks like, I can't recommend Zencaster enough. It's so simple to host, record and download your podcast with and it even has a built-in transcription AI. It functions entirely in the internet browser, which means all your guests have to do is click on a link and they'll be brought into the conversation. If you click on the link in the description, you'll get 30% off the first three months. All you have to do is click on the link in the description. Thanks again for supporting the show and we'll see you in the next episode.